I've often wondered why domestic nonprofits and international NGOs do not share more of their lessons. This is something that I aim to address in my podcast, so I'm happy to interview the seasoned and dynamic Tammy Dowley Blackman, an American consultant who I look up to and who helps U.S. domestic nonprofits become more performance-focused. Hello, and welcome to NGO Solon Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye. My name is Tosca Bruno van Vijfijken, and I'm the founder and principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting. I have over three decades of experience helping leaders in civil society and philanthropic organizations manage change, invest in cutting-edge leadership development, lead organizational culture change, and strengthen organizational effectiveness. If you are in an international civil society leadership position or are aspiring to grow towards that, this podcast is for you. everybody. Here we are with another episode of NGO Soul and Strategy. And today, while we're in the middle of the coronavirus outbreak, I am still very happy to uh, interview Tammy Dowley Blackman of the Tammy Dowley Blackman Group, a consulting firm, a boutique consulting firm here in the U.S. that supports nonprofits in the areas of uh, communications and development or fundraising, areas of leadership development, project design and management, and research and evaluation. And Temi and I recently uh, worked together on a potential project. I really enjoyed um, learning from Temi, and I, I uh, therefore f- felt it was a good idea to interview her. Temi, welcome to NGO Soul and Strategy. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Tass. Uh, Temi, you are the, as I said, the CEO of Temi Dowley Blackman Group. You, uh, you actually, in your past, were an executive director for two nationally affiliated nonprofits, and based on that, you thought um, you felt compelled to start your consulting company. That seems to me like a very sound way of uh, a sound basis for starting a consulting group that you uh, spoke from, uh, from practice. I also um, am interested in this interview to talk about your expertise in the area of diversity uh, and inclusion. I note that you have experience uh, as a diversity officer at the Proteus Fund. You've also taught at Boston University, at Cambridge College, and at Lesley University. And I look forward to, uh, to learning from you in this session. So, Tell us a little bit about, since we are um, in this series talking about how nonprofits can strengthen their outcome orientation, tell me how your consulting work helps those nonprofits who want to strengthen uh, their outcome focus or orientation. Well, I think what's most important is that what you mentioned at the top of this is that I actually have experience as a an executive director, but also in other leadership positions and nonprofits. And so it really, for me, was not uh, simply an idea, but it really was having worked in these important organizations and really having understood 
the magic of them, the beauty of them, but also where it can be difficult that it really has informed my consulting practice, but the, the being there, the touching it, the asking questions, being with teams is was just so, so incredibly important and was the, the biggest lesson. I, I would go back a little bit though, and I've said this to others before and say to you though, I was one of these people who knew that I would end up in this profession from a very young age. Uh, you? I had no idea what idea what it all was I was just I the benefit of uh, nonprofits actually impacting my trajectory ensuring that I got an, a top-notch education and ensuring that I got some wonderful programming when I was a high school uh, student mm-hmm. and those things really became so important I, I wanted to know more about how they came to be why they existed who paid for them who benefited from them other than me made this decision that they'll a nonprofit part of and, and made that decision. But I, it's over time that the real heart of the work is developed, like everyone. There's just no, I did one thing, and then you say, ah, oh, that's it. It really is the benefit of having worked with so many incredibly smart people of all different mm. backgrounds, ages, perspectives, interests, uh, confusion, conflicts all of those things the idea of this work and all is that I have a framework around all things for me regardless of what I'm being asked to do in partnering with an organization with an institution with a corporation with a client it all comes back to me to leadership development and so whether we're talking about a strategic plan whether we're talking about building organizational culture whether we're talking about uh, the kind of curriculum that should be taught, whether we're talking about the kind of organizations to collaborate with. The core is for me, I always go back to a framing of leadership development and see all of this as an opportunity to build leaders. But that looks very different for each of us, for different institutions. And depending upon where we are in the world, it can look very different. And I've been open to that. So that's what I would just open with that I am so privileged mm-hmm. and honored to this, be part of this work that you and I get to do, uh, and that I'm so privileged to be able to talk more about it. So happy to answer any questions that you might have, but it's just, yeah. it's work that I just believe that's really important. So let's let's delve a little deeper then. You emphasized how for you, and, and something that I should have said actually in my introduction to you, uh, Tammy, is that your work is primarily focused on domestic uh, nonprofit uh, here in the U.S., uh, while my work is more focused so far on international NGOs. But as you and I know, there are a number of parallels between the two. Since you said that a lot of, for you, your work comes down to leadership development, coming back to the theme of this series of episodes on um, on how to develop a stronger outcome focus or orientation as a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. How is that aspiration related to leadership development from your perspective? Right. And and I would actually expand it a bit. So in the U.S. Uh, is where I do my work is that it's uh, corporations, it's educational institutions, nonprofits, and philanthropic institutions. And though technically we, of course, can say that philanthropic institutions and educational institutions obviously are nonprofits, I do uh, differentiate because you know they are all different scopes and scales and yeah and what and the kind of work I'm asked to 
do with each of those corporations, educational institutions, nonprofits, and philanthropic institutions. There are times when it is very similar and overlaps, and there are times when it's very different, or even if it's the same type of work, the approach is very different because those institutions are very different. Um, and so over time, again, what I've come to is that to realize, and that's when I began framing the work, particularly over the last decade around leadership development, it was what I was most passionate about, most interested in. Uh, and then to realize that that was something actually was the, regardless of which of those sectors I went, leadership is good leadership and it then results in good organizational culture. It results in good systems. It re results in, in good partnerships. It results in good relationships, internal and external. And so it really has been the framed internally and externally. And again, across those various different sectors, uh, in the work that I, I do with them. And it's been uh, just incredible to realize the similarities, again, the differences, but the similarities. Uh, and ultimately, again, building good leadership just takes care of a whole lot of other things. Mm. Uh, can you share some stories and or observations about um, organizational cultures that you have observed uh, of nonprofits or other organizations that you've worked with where the culture really um, reinforced a focus on making sure that the nonprofit uh, created the outcomes that it promised its mm -hmm. constituents it would deliver. Yeah, it's a, it's a balance and it's a complicated thing, as you know, that many can have great intentions and can still be faced with not meeting those those outcomes that they absolutely really want, that they really have worked hard for, and they just don't get there. And so I would say that it really uh, is important that people know that there are times that we work with amazing clients, and they sometimes don't reach all of what they're hoping for because they don't have the things they need. They've not really thought it through. And they didn't realize that some pieces were bigger than they anticipated uh, in terms of what they would have to do. And so let me be more specific. Uh, I have worked with institutions where, again, this was no lack of good interest or intent. This was not about people who were bad. Uh, these were incredibly smart folks, uh, but they still have gotten tripped up because they didn't stop to do things like really to ask across the organization what people were feeling not just what they were thinking, but what mm -hmm. they were feeling. And that is something that as a person who can tend to be um, very business oriented, can be very plan oriented, uh, who can really move something through a system, even I have to remind myself that it's not just the what you are thinking, but it is the what you are feeling. And so there are times over the last five years in particular where, for example, when I began my work, I did not have any idea that executive coaching, executive mentoring becomes such a critical piece of what I do and strategic advising is overwhelmingly it is now it's from for the end of the team it's also become uh, related to diversity equity inclusion and belonging issues uh, it's become related to uh, younger generations particularly I have a focus on Gen Z and how we're training them to be leaders but mm. also how we're working with supervisors managers to understand the needs for much younger generations not just the presumption that they're smart which they are talented which they are uh, but to understand that this is the first generation in 50 years that actually comes to the workforce with not a lot of actual work experience and so it's all kinds of things in those examples where I'm finding that I'm having to work and help 
asking people not just what you think, it's asking people what they think and what they feel. Really then listening to what they tell you about what they're thinking and feeling, because mm-hmm. there's the other thing that so many times the the uh, attempt to reach outcomes has been throttled because people said, well, I asked, but then they didn't listen. And there really has to be the go together in the equation. Mm. It is not simply enough to have asked, but to really then to be inclusive and in trying to share, this is what I heard. This is what I'm learning. Tell me if I'm off on this, what else could I have understood? And including folks in, in the ability to help you think through what those next step decisions should be. Now, having said all of that, I do not say to senior leaders or senior leadership teams, that ultimately they have to be the decision makers in an institution. And even with great listening, they still ultimately may be in the situation where they have to make the final decision. Articulating that is important. Articulating why you care about what people are thinking and feeling and articulating how you're going to use that information. And to the degree you won't be able to use that information those are yeah. some of the found where people get the best opportunity to reach their outcomes. It is, I, I have found very few people where there was uh, ill intent or they weren't good people. Uh, they simply struggle with how to put the equation together, how to put the pieces together, or presume because I've done one thing translates into that I've done the other things, or as I've worked with this particular age group, making assumption that it also is applicable to another age group, or because I've worked with this diverse group, that I make an assumption that it applies to this diverse group. And those are the things that can make reaching your outcomes very, very difficult, but not because of bad people or ill intent. Uh, I just see. sometimes not putting all of the equation together. So what I'm hearing you say yeah. is you're linking culture as it relates to a strong focus on creating outcomes with the emotional intelligence skills of the leaders involved, uh, inclusive mm-hmm. of their listening skills. Um, and you link that mm-hmm. in turn also to diversion and inclusion and belonging, about which I'll, I'll ask you something a little later, and the Generation Z and other um, generations that we sometimes Mm -hmm. with a catch-all term uh, call millennials. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you though, Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the common myths that you have come across when it comes to nonprofits and and being sufficiently focused on the actual outcomes that they produce? One of the biggest myths, and I take great effort again, having been a leader in nonprofits and found that those are some of the smartest people, most team oriented, who care deeply about the outcomes is this assumption that nonprofits don't know how to actually manage business. And I taught nonprofit management for many years. You mentioned the universities, different experiences, different perspectives. And one of the things I always, the very moment we would start out in the classes, I say to my students, a nonprofit, it is a business. It still has to do its work well. It has to uh, pay attention to its client, its consumer base. It has to market well. It has to manage its finances. It needs to communicate its work. it needs to understand that it has a community to report to. In some ways, better business managers at nonprofits than you might find in some other sector because many nonprofits don't have the safety nets that some other sectors might have, don't have as many resources to go to. And we clearly are seeing 
now that there will be people and institutively trying to manage and get through, but some of our most vulnerable will be smaller institutions, nonprofit mm. and for-profit, uh, but particularly nonprofits. And so that is one of the myths I've always worked to debunk is somehow a nonprofit is not a business. Now, it is not a business in the sense that it has stockholders, but it has stakeholders. It is not a business in the sense that it's about uh, capital gains and dividends, but still it is about having a healthy balance sheet. It's about managing its money well. It's trying to employ its employees competitively and to offer it uh, or additional insurance benefits. It is a business. And those that are the most high performing are because they not only care about the work they're doing, they care about the communities they are serving. They've also managed to put teams together, staff and board of directors who are incredibly uh, focused and attentive and giving, but also incredibly smart and business oriented. Uh, and because they pay a group great deal of bottom line. Not only again, how they're communicating that service, how they're partnering and collaborating, but also how they are financially uh, trying to provide for long-term sustainability for that organization. So that's yeah. one of the biggest myths I think lies out there. There's certainly others, but that's the biggest one for me. That's Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that. In fact, um, uh, well, two observations. One is uh, I find that here in the U.S., um, there is a bigger assumption that nonprofit leaders would do well in um, copying business approaches more than they yes. than they do. Mm -hmm. I find that emphasis less strong in Europe, where I'm from. And uh, the the second observation being is sometimes I feel compelled to ask mm -hmm. uh, um, a leader here, what do you think? that business leaders could learn from nonprofit leaders, because I think it, it, it should go in the other direction too. That's and there, right. there would be some, some good lessons there. So I'm glad that you and I are finding, uh, finding each other there. Mm -hmm. so, so back then to that, um, that outcome focus of nonprofits, um, what are some roadblocks to watch out for when a nonprofit wants to become more outcome focused than it has been in the past? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I'm living this right now. I've got a number of clients that I'm working with where we're doing just that exercise. They, it's not about the work. They've done incredible work. And for uh, one organization in particular, for decades, uh, nationally known, locally known, nationally known, internationally known and recognized for the incredible work they're doing. Uh, but what happens for many nonprofits. And also if you go back to the business model, we have many businesses that have been run successfully, but actually don't make it once they uh, transition to the next generation leadership. Many of them fold. I forget the exact percentage, but many businesses have a very difficult time moving to from one generation to the next. And I would say the same is true for nonprofits, though it's not about generational leadership. It's not uh, mom or dad passing the business off to their daughter or son. But in this instance, what it is, is a, a nonprofit that may have begun small, bootstrapping it and really working with a very small lean team. And it may be that a founder is still on board who's amazing at the vision, amazing at the work, yeah. uh, but the organization has grown tremendously. The times have changed. The local market they're working has changed. They've gone large budget. Uh, they're over, you know, instead of just a handful of employees, they now have scores of employees. These are major accomplishments that an organization has grown to these tremendous heights. 
and has not sacrificed its its service, its clients, its objectives, its passion at all. But it can be a bumpy ride because if they've not stopped to think about internal systems in particular, it can make it very difficult for them to make that transition well. So more specifically, uh, if they have not thought through systems of communications. So for one organization I worked with, it was difficult. They used to be six people. Well, if you're six people, you're bound to pass each other in the communal space at some point, whether you're grabbing your coffee or eating lunch, or you simply just walk out of your offices and can connect with one another. That's easy. But when you've now grown to 35 people, that's actually now much more difficult. Mm-hmm. You might have 20% of those folks that you literally have gone two days and just haven't run into each other because yeah. everyone's committed, their head is down, they're doing great work. You might have more meetings outside of the business, outside of the building. You might now have extensive travel involved as you've expanded to new sites that take you out of your local area. So communications quickly becomes an issue for organizations that, again, are trying to make these transitions. Not that they've lost their interest in their outcomes, but it can it can affect, it can impact negatively, negatively impact their outcomes because somehow they didn't make the adjustment and realize that communications would become even more important. Yeah. Um, but it's the thing that's more, that's the quickest to, to actually lose sight of. And then secondly, I would just point out one other thing is that uh, transparency. So again, there were six of us in the office. Well, we would end up talking about that grant that we were writing, or we'd end up talking about that potential new board member, or we'd talk about that potential partnership. And all of us were included, even if it was not our direct responsibility, we Mm -hmm. felt in the know. But now what you might have is now we've grown to 30, 35, 45 people, and there could be huge pieces of work that are going without other people's attention to it, or even knowledge of it. And it is nothing Uh, related to trying to leave anyone out or to not be inclusive or not to get new ideas. It's just moving so quickly. And so without some kind of mechanism for transparency around some kind of decision-making tool so that everyone knows that I don't have to worry, even if I'm not part of that conversation, I know they use the decision-making tool. And so I know that it's kept to our values. I know that it is in line with all of the other projects that we've taken on. I know that it's going to be great partners. But if we don't have that decision-making tool, I might be left worrying okay, is that a project we all agree on? Is that a project that I can feel good about? Is that a project that's going to be successful, that we can manage well? So, yes, it connects to communication negatively impact an organization's intended outcomes if they're not staying attuned to how those things can get away from them. Yes, yes, makes sense. I want to... um... Uh, pivot a little bit to um, to the topic of uh, tapping into your expertise on on diversity and inclusion um, in all realms, including what you mentioned around Generation Z uh, um, mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. in in the workplace in in nonprofits. So, mm-hmm. how is diversity and inclusion directly or indirectly related to? an aspiration by nonprofits to become more outcome focused. How do you see those two things linked? So I think over, I think that you've always had organizations, again, in my work with a variety of sectors. So whether it's been corporations, educational institutions, nonprofit or philanthropic institutions, I have so many examples of where those folks have been thinking long-term about diversity, equity, inclusion, and, and now more specifically even belonging. 
but they may not have connected all the dots or they may have done it in fits and starts or some of it has changed or dropped away over time as different employees come and go. And now what I think that we have at our fingertips is, is a time where people are getting to they understand that it needs a much more comprehensive conversation. So it's not, some people I mm-hmm. think that feel like, well, all of a sudden you've got institutions who want to jump in to the conversation about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Very well be true for some. We've all experienced that where it's now just adopting of, of the work that many were always involved in, always mm-hmm. doing, even when it was a struggle for them or when they weren't doing it well. And so I uh, always say, bravo to those organizations who are doing it with very little help, very little expertise, but believed in this work and believed that as we came to do our best work, that we needed to be thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and we needed to be creating equity in a whole lot of different ways. So if it's about pay the same, uh, making sure that someone um, who has trouble seeing or someone who has trouble walking can access the space clear and free and be comfortable, whether Mm -hmm. it's about sexual orientation or the way someone speaks, cultural competency. Again, we've had organizations who've always had their finger on the pulse and have been thinking about this and doing this work incredibly well. But I think what we have now is a time where it feels more comfortable. There are a lot more resources. There are bigger conversations. It connects to other kinds of issues climate change, economic disparity, all of these things. So none of this is all of a sudden. I think that more people have more language. And this is where I think that we fail to give great uh, kudos and thanks to our younger generations who are far more comfortable, who have been thinking about this, who live this, who got a chance to, to be a part of this in significant ways. And I think that some jump to the conclusion that somehow they, they meaning younger generations, millennial and and so forth that somehow uh, they're colorblind or they don't really talk about issues. They want to presume that someone could always feel comfortable in their section and the fluidity of language. It is not that they presume that those things were always there. I think many of them are incredibly thankful for people who have come before and gone through really tough situations. I think what they are saying is that they are so thankful that they get to have a conversation with them and that they've really been able to help us think through and build some of the tools that we're able to use. Uh, but the key is that they're just willing to have the conversation. Now, it's, it's all of, is it that all of, all, of the, all of those conversations are right on point or accurate? No, because I've actually worked with some of my clients where what we have is younger generations who've learned tons, but they've learned it as theory. Now they're in their first job and they don't always know how to exercise it in mm. practice because more importantly, they don't actually understand professional practice. And so many times they throw into under the umbrella of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, every issue. And when I pull back, when I go into one of my corporate clients or educational clients, or I go into a nonprofit or philanthropic institution, and I start working with them over three, six, nine months a year, and we pull back the layers, we find that a lot of it is about uh, assumptions and it's about supervisory issues. It's about, I don't actually know what I'm supposed to do professionally, or it's about a senior manager who presumed that because you're smart in technology and you went to one of the best schools that you have all the skills you need and forgot to actually help you think through a work plan, help you get professional development and give you space and a place to be able to ask questions that are not silly but are really questions that you're challenged by because you've not had a lot of work experience. So it's on both sides. Yeah. Uh, but but it's really important that people understand 
uh, that diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging are not new. I think there's some newness for many to, who are embracing it, but it's also part of it is that we have far more tools. We have people, again, many of them are younger adults who are able to have bigger and better uh, and more interesting conversations, uh, and they are not afraid to have those conversations. No. But also, I to those who or younger folks who are showing me the way and giving me language. I can't tell you how many CEOs I've worked with who literally are afraid because they don't have the right language. Yeah. Some of the work we do around diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging is literally just getting everyone on this on their same page around what language they would like to use. Not prescribing a language, allowing them to develop that, but all coming to agreement about that. Then we start talking about what does it look like? How does DEIB play out in their institution or not? Where do they fall short? What would different? How would they like to bring the community externally into their internal community conversations and so forth? Mm. Uh, but I would say that it's not a, um, it's certainly not a one-track conversation, and it's customized. When I do the work with these these particularly wonderful partners, it's all customized because they need something very different. They're coming at it very differently. Their workforce is very different. Their assumptions are very different, and so uh, it's been an interesting body of work. That and the executive coach that I, I just would have predicted to you when I was 10 years ago, uh, that would become such a critical part of what I do and that I was asked to do. Not that I presumed it, but was asked to do it. And over time, it's just become uh, something that even more have asked for and has become a bigger part of the work we do. Uh, well, I know for sure that I'm going to ask you to come back to uh, Tammy when I have um, host a series on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion because I know we uh, we uh, can to. go much much deeper on that topic. So let me, towards the end of uh, of our time together, let me ask you something a little bit provocatively. Tell me something mm -hmm. that you think is true that almost no nonprofit would agree with you on. So I would say that it's not that they wouldn't agree, but I think that many still don't give it the level of importance that I give it. And I would say it's professional development for their emerging leaders. And let me explain that, is that I think that because many of our nonprofits are limited in resources, yeah. and because so many of our philanthropic institutions and our individual like to brag about an organization that is using 90 cents of every dollar on programming, that they yeah. sort of built in this uh, bravado around somehow less is more mm -hmm. and, and less in this instance of professional development is not more. We're hurting our institutions and we're hurting these young emerging leaders, again, who are smart and interesting, want to do great work. Uh, but are ill-prepared in, in many ways. And then we have this vacuum where we've got these amazing leads who've carried the shoulders, many of whom are going to retire, and we've not done the finest job of preparing the next set of leaders. Mm. Now, that's not true across the board. I certainly work with many folks who have invested, even if they didn't have dollars to invest, they have tried their best to make sure, again, they are communicating, they have transparency, they're allowing some of their younger leaders to be involved. I was lucky in that. My first year out of college, the mentor, a woman who I adore and still stay in contact with, she taught me a beautiful lesson many decades ago when she opened it all up to me. 
and allowed me to do and try and ask and be a part of every conversation, every grant we were writing. It wasn't until many years later, Tosca, that I realized how fortunate I was when I was offered my first executive directorship. And I asked them, well, why would you select me given I'm not from your area? I'm an unknown entity to you. And certainly it was because of all the kinds of work that I was done that was direct, I had done that was directly related and that I had been associate director of admissions at a top 25 college. I understood college access. I had been working on diversity, equity, inclusion efforts. I had built out a small nonprofit for the arts for a community in Philadelphia. I had done all these things that certainly that mm-hmm. mattered. These were skills that I had built and, and jobs I had taken on, roles I had taken on that mattered. But the one thing they said really it just this topped it for them was the fact that I understood not only programmatically what needed to be done to be done, but I understood actually how to pay for it and how to create the budget for it and how to create the projections for it and how to explain it to the board and how to to talk to the staff about it. And they had interviewed a number of candidates who knew only one or the other side, who knew how to do development, Mm. but didn't know program or knew program, but had no use for development. Just assumed it's an amazing program. It'll pay for itself. It'll fund itself. And it's not that. And that's something that I've never forgotten. And I just, in, in all the ways I can, I've tried to invest in young leaders, even when I was an executive director. Again, our budget would have liked, I have doubt, uh, ways in which we could do professional development for these leaders, because I knew that I wanted them to be able to do incredible work well after they left us. Then I had the privilege to actually direct a fellowship that was designed to bring more people of color into the philanthropic sector. I directed Uh that for almost a decade and it was based in the New England region in Boston metro area, but it served the country. And it is one of my proudest uh, professional opportunities is that the, what we were able to do for these professionals, for these young emerging leaders who are doing incredible work in the philanthropic sector on their way to becoming CEOs, becoming trustees of philanthropic institutions, yeah. all because we understood the value of professional development, investing in them, and really stopping to think about what excellent, effective leadership development looked like, not just talked about it, but what it looked like and then actually did it. Uh, so I think that there are many nonprofit leaders who would say, oh yeah, of course I, I believe even that, of course, I that and it's that for other things that are more important. And I truly think that it is uh, it is the most important thing. And I think that this crisis that we're all involved in even shows that more. Uh, we need to have leaders who are what it means to quickly leaders who are technologically savvy. We need mm. leaders who can quickly think about how do I now run a program differently? How do I fundraise a program differently? We need leaders who have been given the opportunity to be trained and to ask good questions, to ask hard questions, to do that in cohort learning, uh, to be invested in in a way that I think that we're just continuing to overlook at our own peril. Wow. I I really like how you tie that into the current uh, coronavirus. And I'm glad to to sense that you and I have a shared passion for uh, leadership development in general, but also for the development and mentoring of young leaders. I personally find that very rewarding in my own uh, career as well. Mm-hmm. Well, Tammy, as we, we need to bring our time to a close, so if our listeners want to learn more about you and about the uh, TDB group, where should they go to, to learn about that? Sure, I'd love to hear from them. They can go online and to the website, which is Tammy, T-A-M-M-Y, D as in David, B as in boy.com. Uh, 
uh, can certainly just put in my name, Tammy Daly, D-O-W-L-E-Y hyphen Blackman, B-L-A-C-K-M-A-N, and things will come up and there's contact information. But we really have tried to build out a website that allows uh, for not only seeing the breadth and depth of the work that I've done over these last uh, 16 years, my firm and the partners, the, but the kind of clients and some of the products and, and so forth. Uh, so it's the website is the best place and there's contact information. And I love talking to folks on LinkedIn and getting messages. I do it, build the space into my work to know what others are doing. Uh, and so I, I do that. I just cold email LinkedIn uh, notes to folks saying, I'm, I'm watching your work. I love your work. Or I saw this particular article and would love to know more. So please reach out. I'd love it. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure you'll have people uh, coming to you. Well, Tammy, thank you so much for this very thoughtful conversation. And uh, as I said, I'm going to be sure to, to have you back on the, the show of NGO Soul and Strategy. So till next time, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to NGO Soul and Strategy. If you want to learn more, have a look at my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org, where you will find posts on topics related to what we discussed today. That's five, as in the number five, oaksconsulting.org. You can also find free white papers there, recordings of interviews with me, as well as information about the upcoming book, Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs, of which I'm a co-author and which will be published in June 2020. Or feel free to email me at tosca at fiveoaksconsulting.org and follow me on my social media channels, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. And be sure to leave a review on iTunes or any of the places where you get your podcasts so that others can find it too. So until we talk again, this is Tosca at NGO Soul and Strategy the podcast for leaders who look change right in the eye.